Welcome everyone to Beyond Our Sidelines. On today's episode, we will welcome Dr. Lenny Wiersma, who is a professor of sports psychology in the Department of Kinesiology at Cal State Fullerton. Dr. Wiersma and I will sit down for a wonderful discussion uh, about the benefits and drawbacks of sports specialization for young athletes, as well as talk about his own research on the subject. Make sure to subscribe to our channel so you can stay up to date with all of our future episodes. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. Well, yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for for joining me. I really, really appreciate it. This is uh, this topic of of sports specialization is actually one that I, I think about a lot in in my my day to day work, um, and I think it's a really interesting topic and in, in conversation to have. And so I just appreciate you taking the time to to join me and uh, kind of diving into that topic a little bit. Um, so I'd, I'd really be interested in getting to know a little bit about your background um, and, you know, what uh, what led you to be a part of kind of that conversation in, in general. I, uh, my background's in sports psychology. I've got a master's and doctorate in sports psych. And when I was in my doctoral program, my advisor would bring up, uh, my PhD advisor would bring up topics in sport, um, sorry, in classes about youth sport. Mm-hmm. And... I initially, you know, I think a lot of people who go into sports psych want to work with elite level athletes, uh, Olympic teams, professional, and that was, that was my intention. And it's certainly something that I continue to do today. But at the time, I just kept getting drawn towards stories of kids in sport and the toll that it could take if it's not done the right way. And she really kind of fostered that, that interest that I had. And then in uh, 1996, I was fortunate to attend the Olympic Games in Atlanta. And that was uh, something that really struck my attention, um, was watching some of the really young athletes who were able to compete in the Olympic Games at the time. I mean, I remember I was on the, uh, at the pool when Amanda Beard, who later would become a multi-medalist uh, for Team USA in swimming, she walked onto the pool deck. She was 14 years old. She was carrying this big teddy bear. It just seems so out of like character to, to think of an elite athlete who has that type of pressure At to be that years young. Old. Yeah. And she write, she wrote a book after she retired and she reflected on that first Olympics when she was 14 and she had no capacity to really fathom the pressure that she was under. And in those same Olympics, you know, Dominic Mochianu, the gymnast was 14 years old. The, uh, the magnificent seven as they were named that mm-hmm. got the first ever gold medal for the u.s was their average age was 14 years old fuming chow was a olympic medalist diver from china who was 12 years old and so at the time that i was really starting to hone in on the psychology of sport at the same time i'm looking at these really young athletes and learning a lot about development and thinking is this right i mean is this something that, that we should be promoting is what does it take to get to that level at such a young age? So that was really the impetus of my early interest in youth sports psychology, particularly around the topic of specialization. Uh, and so that's where, how it sort of started. Wow. That's, uh, that's really interesting. And where, in, in so that was in 96 was the 1996. That's right. Wow. Um, and so what, what did you find like in, in your research over, over the years? What have you kind of found to, to be the, the impetus behind specialization and, and why people tend to, or why that is a, something that people are doing? First, I think it's important to define the parameters of specialization um, in, the, in the context of 
what you just asked is important. Uh, specialization, as most people in the field view it, is not just competing in a single sport, but it's competing in a single sport year-round with infrequent uh, breaks from training, mm -hmm. where the young people are restricting activities outside of that. There's tends to be a projection for long-term success. Uh, and so there's some pressure that goes with that. There's a lot of expense that goes with training. Uh, specialized uh, sports in the past used to be primarily individual sports, swimming and figure skating and gymnastics. And now what we've seen since I first started researching it is that specialization has trickled down into team sports as well, where you have you know basketball players who are playing year-round and travel and private coaching and soccer. And so it's gone beyond the individual sport to the team sport environment. And so I'm not as concerned with a young person who chooses to do a single sport. They do it seasonally. It's not, there's not a lot of, lot of pressure, but that really I'm interested in is the real intense involvement that takes an awful lot of investment of money of time and so that's what I want to make sure that the listeners understand I'm focusing on. So, and I, I think in response to your question about the research, uh, I believe that we should be focusing more on what are the longer term consequences of an athlete who's in that environment. And I think that there's now enough reason to believe that if a child's not prepared physically or psychologically, socially for that environment that there's a lot of negative outcomes that could surface mm -hmm. uh, burnout is a big one um, lack of identity is a big one this goes back to research even before i started with a sociologist named jay coakley who talked about young athletes who form an identity that's restricted only to their sport and then when they struggle when they're injured when they don't have opportunities to continue to advance they have a very narrowed view of who they are. And right. when that's compromised, then they ask some big questions about their worth, their value, how much people you know, love them outside of what they can do in their sport. And so uh, on the one hand, I think that we've got some pretty good indication of some of the sociological and psychological tolls that specialization might lead to over time. A really interesting thing too is since I first started looking at this, there have been a number of studies published even fairly recently that show the majority of athletes who perform in team sports at the professional level, and that's an important distinction, team sports, Major League Baseball, the NBA, football. Most of the elite athletes came from a diverse background where even through high school, they participated in a variety of sports. They played basketball and football and soccer. So if people argue that specializing is the pathway to success, I think that we've been able to establish that that's actually not true in many cases or most cases when it comes to team sport athletes. Individual sport athletes, I do believe still that if ultimately a young person over time wants to become an Olympic tennis player or uh, elite swimmer, that there will be a time at which they're going to have to really hone in on that training and do it year round and in many cases have, you know, private coaches and, uh, but 
if I were to support that, which I do on, on occasion, you know, you look at, you look at a lot of Olympians, like in swimming, I work with USA swimming, Katie Ledecky, for example, you know, she may not have benefited so much of playing soccer and basketball and swimming late into high school. She probably wouldn't have gotten to the point where she was breaking world records at such a young age. If she hadn't just focused on swimming year round, that would be an environment in which it was a environment that she was ready for that she had supportive parents and coaches and so there are certainly exceptions of young people who choose to specialize with the pathway of really wanting to become an elite athlete but a lot of those athletes who don't make it to that level i think it kind of get lost in the conversation so what was the what was the return on the investment for all the years that a very young person decided to restrict their involvement to in in some cases homeschool to sometimes in more extreme cases move across the country to train i know usa gymnastics has rightfully so i might add been just grilled in the media over the last few years particularly with respect to how young athletes were treated the lack of oversight um and you know that was the case for a long time where these very young particularly girls would travel to Texas or to these training sites and their family would often split up so that one of them could, you know, in many cases, the father could continue working to support the financial cost. And so what about those athletes? What about the athletes who sacrificed a great deal of themselves and their family and then they get injured, they get cut, you know, whatever, you know, what, what is the outcomes for those athletes? Right. Right. And how do you, and how do you make that decision at, at such a young age to, to say this is the sport that I am going to to focus on and this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my athletic career. You know, where when do you start thinking about the benefits of just doing just specializing in tennis or gymnastics or basketball or soccer versus kind of diversifying what you're doing and playing seasonally playing basketball and then playing, you know, maybe baseball or soccer or something else. You know, how do you how do you kind of put that together at such a young age to say, this is what I'm going to do? Like, what are, what are the benefits of, of doing that? First and foremost, if you're going to do it the right way, that's got to be driven by the athlete, him or herself. Right. And so maybe if a parent or a coach sees promise in a young athlete, a young person, they may want to really encourage that, that young athlete to really become serious about it. And if that athlete themselves him or herself isn't interested in doing that or isn't ready for that, then that's got to be the, the primary concern is does the athlete want to do it and why do they want to do it? Is it going to be healthy for them to do it? So there's that part of it is just the decision-making being solely resting on the athlete, him or herself. And then if they do decide that they really do want to focus on a single sport and really dedicate their time to it, now it's a matter of making sure that the environment in which that young person is training is suitable for them. Are there safeguards against overtraining? Are there safeguards against uh, lacking interaction with other kids their age in school settings? Or, or maybe the goals of the adults who are involved with it, the coaches, the parents, are they starting to supersede the goals of the young person? And so, you know, there's very little governmental oversight to really help with that process. You know, the NC2A, for example, has a 20 hour training restriction and all kinds of oversight into how student athletes are treated at the college level. But 
believe it or not, there's zero safeguards in place for an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old. I think it's just fascinating that, you know, young people could, there's labor laws that restrict how much time that a young person can work at cash register at, at, you know, Dunkin' Donuts, for example, my favorite coffee, by the way. Um, But uh, I see your Boston hat. Uh, That's an ode to my Massachusetts grad school. Um, But we don't have those same sort of oversights on young people who train in in sports settings so it's got to be that i think it's got to be the guys of first and foremost the parents to have a really healthy perspective about okay if they're if they're talented they're going to be talented later we just have to nurture this we have to maybe not do too much too soon i i truly believe that if a young person shows talent and the young person shows promise at a young age Mm -hmm. that that talent and promise isn't going to go away by holding them back. It's not going to go away by encouraging them. Hey, maybe you should pick up a sport or two. You're, you're 10 years old. Why don't we have some fun for a little bit? That talent's not going to go away. But I think a lot of people believe, oh, we need to find it early and we need to, to really hone in on, on that. Yeah. And I just don't think so that that's the case. Well, and, so, and that, that's, a, that's interesting because I think, uh, so in 2000, you published an, an article uh, that was titled Risk and Benefit of, of Youth Sports Specialization um, Perspectives and, and Recommendations. And, and in there, you posed kind of a question um, that said, basically, what is it about specialization that leads coaches, parents, and athletes to believe it is advantageous um, and leaders of sport organizations to, to dissuade it? Um, and I think that's that there's this kind of push and pull between those two ideas where one side wants maybe wants kids to, to specialize and play soccer year round, whereas you know another side might not think that that's a that's a positive idea. What did you find, you know, in in your research that kind of gets to that that issue of those two kind of conflicting ideologies? Examples that people use to support specialization, get them involved really early, have them do it a lot were based on a very limited number of successful cases. Mm-hmm. So when you have an athlete like Amanda Beard or Dominic Mociano or, uh, you know, Tara Lipinski, who was 15 in the Olympic Games in 98, again, this is when I was starting to get interested in this, then you have a limited number of very successful cases that people say, well, look at the pathway they took. And it led to this. So maybe that's the pathway that I want for my young person. but. What they didn't take into account were the exceptionally large number of cases of kids who went that route, who, who never got to that stage. And so I think the arguments for it were relatively biased to those athletes that it worked for them. And when I say it worked for them, I mean, it got them to a certain level. Now, were they healthy? I, I think when you start reading into the lives of those young people who were in that sort of pressure-filled environment at such, at such a young age, I think a lot of them led to really negative outcomes. I think of uh, Andre Agassi, you know, mm-hmm. as a tennis player, and he wrote that that really great autobiography. Um, you know, he talks a lot about the toll it took on him, and I think that's a, a fairly common thing. But you always do have exceptions to that. I know a lot of Olympic athletes from sports in which I've worked where you do actually have people who have 
done that and have, who have come out well balanced and but it took a, a real effort to make sure that those young people were getting what they needed to ensure that at the end of it all that they came out you know having developed positively as a result of it and we don't always know the the impact right away it's it, the the impact and the toll that it can take uh, might not be felt until till later on in life. You know, it's not something that we see necessarily in all cases in a a sixteen year old, um, you know, yeah. who's specializing in a sport. But you know, maybe as a as an adult, we start to to see some of the impacts that overuse and and too much training, or you know, some of the social emotional side of 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 being so focused for on one thing. You know, we start to see that maybe yeah. later on. Um, which is really, and I'm actually, so I'm personally probably a, uh, the reason why this topic is so important to me is actually I'm, I'm, I'm a decent case study in, in the difference between specializing and playing multiple sports because, um, I, I happened to be, uh, when I was younger, I happened to be a, a really good tennis player. Um, it was a sport I picked up really easily, picked up and I played and I focused a lot on it. Um, and, and some of that was, was me wanting to, to play because I was good at it and you're getting that, that positive feedback and you're seeing positive results and there's, there's you know, that internal drive to, to want to continue to get that feedback. Um, but I also happened to also be good at you know, other sports. I was good at basketball and baseball, um, but I focused a lot of my intention on tennis and I think it, I ended up playing in, in college, but I got burnt out and I have not played since, since finishing university. I have not... I may have gone out one or two times, but I have not played in, in probably over 12 years. Um, and it was because I focused so much of my attention on that sport while I was, while I was a kid. Uh, the impact of that is now seen now where I don't really have an interest in, in playing, even though it's a healthy behavior and is something that is a positive thing to potentially be doing. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's, it's a really interesting conversation about what happens later on um, versus that, that in the moment time of, of focusing so much attention on this one activity. Um, and so, well, for what it's worth, tennis is one of those activities that's right. Like riding a bike. I think if, if at some point you decide I want to pick up my racket again, I mean, I started playing tennis in my forties and I had never played before and it's, it's a phenomenal game. It's fun, well, but you, you're lucky that you can fall back on that. I hope so. I, I do. I do hope so. But I also realized, I think, in in through my through my work and just through through my own research and, and conversations that I've had with coaches and athletes from from all over, um, you know, had tennis, for example, uh, basketball and tennis. Those are two sports that go really well together. So the the things that you learn from playing basketball can translate over to to playing tennis, and the things that you learn playing tennis can also translate over to to the basketball court. And so I think. You know, there's there's really big benefit to to being able to focus your attention seasonally and in a good environment on multiple different sports and activities, so that you can build a well-rounded kind of platform. And um, what has your research kind of said about kind of diversified sports and, and playing multiple sports versus that specialization? From a motor development standpoint, when people are young the more that they can hone a variety of skills, the better off they're going to be in any one skill down the line. Uh, that, that's pretty clear. Um, that's why we need to take into account in this conversation 
earliest experiences that kids have in physical education settings or in youth sports settings, the ability for them to first build the foundational skills, just your, your motor skills of running and throwing and catching and kicking. And we, we tend to think of like in school settings, you would never put a, put a child in a calculus class before they've taken geometry, for example. And we know that you have to build off of these skills that you need, but sometimes we sort of rush through kids early on through those early stages where they're going to really specialized skills and they don't yet spend enough time on the basics. Then you also take into account, I know a lot of athletic trainers would like to enter this conversation overuse injuries mm-hmm. and where a person's using the same set of muscles repeatedly where there's not adequate rest and recovery and that, that there's a strong connection between that and overuse injuries. And then that leads to possibly them not being able to perform physical skills to the best of their ability, maybe throughout their life. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of different angles we can go on this. The one thing I also think is important saying, you know, just in the context of any elite sport environment, I'll preface this by saying that I, I've dedicated my life to studying sport. It's not I, it's something that I think is a very positive thing. I have been an athlete myself, and but the more I work in elite sport, the more I think it's important to recognize that elite sport settings are not very mentally healthy, mm-hmm. and uh, across the board, whether you diversified or you specialized, you look at you look at mental health in professional athletes and coaches and support members. It takes a toll. It is outcome focused. It is nonstop. It, you know, a lot of pressure. We, we need, I believe the reason that people might ask them, well, then why do you work in this environment? Well, what I do in sports psych, I think is a critically important piece of trying to provide that perspective and provide that support for athletes, regardless of how old they are or when they started to specialize coaches. It's a huge thing. Yeah, I think the the environment that we can create for athletes, no matter their age, is so important, uh, and that's that's down to the organizations that are that are facilitating those or those those activities to the coaches who are are, are teaching the the athletes. Um, you know that environment creating a positive place for for kids, especially young kids, but then of course as they get older, creating that positive yeah. environment is so important, um, and a lot of that is is what you what you're just talking about, um, mm-hmm. and also understanding that kids. Are developing at different rates and different different paces, and and not everyone develops the same way. Um, and so, you know, what do you think about, you know, that that development process and how, you know, because it differs for every every kid and, and for for every athlete. You know, how do you think the the natural development process that that people go through might play into the argument for or or against specialization? Uh, with youth sports, the primary way that young people are grouped is based on chronological age. So mm-hmm. if you're, you know, your, your birthday cutoff is between like, you know, July 31st and August 1st or whatever it might be, June 30th, July 1st, then you're automatically grouped with people who are your identical chronological age. And that's based on the assumption that everybody develops roughly equally, which is not the case at all. Right. And so if we could do a better job of understanding the difference between chronological age and maturational age, then I think early on we do a better job of matching young people to environments that are most suitable for them, that are 
different from age. You know, you take your late developers who are then playing with people who are developmentally two or three years older than them at the same age, it's easy for them to get frustrated and to want to quit. Mm -hmm. And then we didn't keep them long enough for them to really start to develop. And so I think that the discussion of chronological versus maturational age is something that more youth organizations probably need to have. The problem with that is it's so much more difficult to measure than birth certificates, you know, and I teach a youth sport class at Cal State Fullerton and I have students in class who are seniors and who are graduate students and they are majoring in kinesiology. They've taken all the classes and I do an exercise with them where I'll, I'll put them in groups and I'll have them talk about like different levels of sport based on how competitive it is. And I break it down from biological and psychological and mm-hmm. emotional and social uh, milestones. And I ask them, if you were a parent, what would you need to know about your kid to know if they're ready for this from biological perspective, psychological, et cetera. These are the, are the people who would most likely be able to be capable of doing that because they're kinesiology majors and they study this from all these perspectives and they struggle with it. Sorry, the painters just showed up. Sorry. <laughs> no, no worries. Uh, Mavericks. Okay, buddy. So they struggle with it. And I say, you know, what about your average, like, you know, real estate agent, Uber driver, mom or dad, who's, coaching the sport, imagine how difficult it is for them to gauge or who just have kids who want to play sport to know when they're ready for certain levels. So everybody matures at different ages. Uh, We know that. And we have sort of still a one size fits all sort of model at the youngest levels, but it's just, it's just easier to do it by chronological age than it is to do it by maturational age. Well, you know, I think we, we all know easier doesn't necessarily mean better. Um, and, yeah. and so how do we how do we go about having that conversation on a on a bigger scale? Because it is difficult. There's a lot of factors and layers to our youth sports and, and our, our college sports and our high school sports. There's there's a lot of money involved. There's a lot of, you know, so many different factors. How do we go about having that conversation about thinking about things in a different way? There's two organizations I think are doing a tremendous job at this. The first is the Aspen Institute. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are pretty well connected to other organizations such as Nike and the USOPC. And they're doing a lot of annual uh, research on trends in youth sport environments to try and do things better and try to really learn about what kids want, listen to what kids want, and then trying to reorganize the youth sport landscape. Uh, so the Aspen Institute is putting out really nice, they call it the state of play report every year. I would look into that if you haven't yet seen it. Uh, the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee uh, in 2016 came up with uh, the American development model. And it's in the shape of a pyramid to start with the foundation, which is the first exposure to sport. And then as it goes up into more elite levels, you've got fewer and fewer kids. It's a really nice model to understand uh, approximate age ranges at which young people are ready for certain levels of the competition. And so uh, if you look up American Development Model by the USOPC, they've got great resources for coaches and parents that provide an understanding of when kids might be ready for these different levels. So Aspen Institute and the USOPC, I think, are doing a really nice job with trying to educate coaches and parents on how to do that the right way. 
and what can and and what can we do on an individual? Like, what do you, what are you know? Sometimes I think it's hard for people to wrap their head. Around. I know I, I struggle with it. It's how, how can people wrap their head around like what can I do as an individual? I'm a parent or a coach or a you know a, a youth practitioner, and I, I run an organization. What are what can we do on kind of an individual level to to start to think of things you know in a little a little bit of a different way and create that kind of environment that that is positive for the development process. I'd say take advantage of the momentum that's been created over the last maybe three or four years to to really try to see that there's a better way of doing things. If you're not familiar with those things, again, I think I'd go back to that Aspen Institute report, and there's things that are happening monthly at the state and the local level to try to really provide better experiences for kids. That being said, if you are a parent or you're a coach in a local community, there's momentum for this now. And I think people are, are really starting to recognize that there's a better way of doing things that better meets the needs of kids. Uh, also, riding the momentum that we see with physical activity in kids and what a lack of physical activity for kids can do, mm-hmm. the possible connection between screen time and mental health, for example. Um, so. There's, it, there are opportunities now at the local level for people to really try to uh, do things differently than they have done before. Um, my students, I, I mentioned that youth sport class I teach at Cal State Fullerton, they have an assignment where they have to write a California State Assembly bill mm-hmm. that helps regulate some things that they consider to be important in uh, youth sport. And they come up with these phenomenal ideas of just efforts that the states can take in our particular case, California, because that's where we live, but to, to make some very simple and positive changes to the way that kids experience sport. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, it's, it'll take some time and and it'll take more people having a conversation about doing things a little bit differently or thinking about things in a different way. And, and over time, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll continue to see some of the, these positive stories and these positive things that that are happening. We'll see more and more of that uh, going on all over the country and, and, and all over the world. Cause I think it's, this is such an important thing to, to think about how, how we can better support young, not just athletes, but young individuals. And, yeah. And the Aspen Institute, for example, I, I don't know if you've read, they do have a report that talks about uh, video games and esports and, and the role that those are starting to play in getting kids to um, yeah. a, away from playing sports and now getting some of the same benefits that they get from playing sports, which is that social and emotional connection and playing with their friends and their peers. You know, you're starting to see that happening inside and and. On a, on a video game playing Madden or, or Fortnite or something like that. And, and they're not then getting the, the physical and, and some of the other benefits of, of playing sports. And so, um, you know, it's, it's a really important conversation to, to be having. Um, I do think that ought to be a, you ought to do an entire podcast on that topic uh, of, of esports and, and the popularity of esports and it's only going to get more and more popular and there's a lot of money being spent on recruiting kids. Uh, I will say this, and then you can talk to somebody who's more of an expert on it. The esport industry has done it right though, because the child is the center of the experience in a video game. Right. And that is often not the case in youth sport settings where they're standing in lines and 
you know, the best kids get to play and others don't get much playing time. And the video game industry has figured out what do kids want? They want to be at the center of the action. They want to be able to control their choices. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's incredible the, the draw that these esports have on kids and they've earned it. They've figured out what kids want and they've done a really nice job of providing it. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's entirely healthy for kids to be doing that and that, but again, that, that warrants maybe an entirely different discussion. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's, there's, there's things that we can, we can learn from, from the model that, that they've created. Right. Uh, you're giving kids more of a voice in, in what, what their programming looks like. You know, that's, yep. that's important. Kids want to feel like they have some ownership over, over the, the sport or the activities that they're doing. And esports is showing that that, that works. Um, yep. what, what role do you think uh, free play has? Cause I know that's, that's something that I notice a lot, just, just casually observing. I know when I was a kid, I would go to the park and I'd play basketball for hours and hours, or I'd go, you know, play soccer or whatever it was. I would just go play and we'd find games or we'd play with strangers or we'd, you know, whatever. We'd play pickup basketball for hours. Um, it, that still happens, of course, but I, I, I don't see it just eye test. I don't see it happening as, as much. And I think there's reports that, that back that that I test up that free play is just not as prevalent um, probably because of year round sports being an option um, and some other things. But what, what role does free play have in, in, you know, some of these, these ideas of, of, you know, specialization playing multi-sports or just getting kids in a positive environment. The specialized sport environment would be on the exact opposite of the continuum to a free play environment with virtually every single thing. Right. the extent to which the kids make decisions, how fun it is. I mean, it, it's polar opposites. Uh, it's it's complex, though, because, sorry, now we have a Sandy going, can you hear me okay? Yeah, perfect, no worries. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, um, and I moved this to my living room because I thought they were going to be working with my offices. Uh, you know, you look at schools. I think schools have taken a similar approach to the youth sport environment where they focus on outcomes and funding is based off of performance on standardized tests and kids having fewer and fewer opportunities during the school day to move and to be free. Mm -hmm. uh, physical education time has been cut down. Recess time has been cut down. There's been recently states that have created legislation to mandate that recess be provided. Uh, they've extended the school days of some uh, districts to account for mandatory free play recess. I think that these are really important trends yeah. i think it highlights the benefits of what you were saying with kids being able to go out and just create their own experiences we we know that there's a lot of benefits to kids engaging in their own play with respect to socialization skills development of language mm -hmm. there's a lot of you know we we've not we i'm hopefully not that old but child Psychologists have been saying for a hundred years that free play leads to better decision-making, more creativity. But recently there's been some great research on neural development. And I know that you had a recent podcast on brain development, but mm -hmm. one of the best ways for kids to develop neural pathways of language and mathematics skills is to engage in free play where they're putting together blocks or Legos, or they're looking at the relationship between two things. There's a, really interesting theory of loose parts, they call it, where if you take a variety of miscellaneous things and you tell kids to do something with it, that that spurs advanced neurological development of the brain. So 
the old school argument was kids will be better people because they'll be better able to communicate. They'll be more creative. The new school argument is it, it actually changes the way that the brain develops by allowing them to engage in free play with things that we've taken for granted to be just, you know, wasted time type of activities, water balloon fights and playing horse in your backyard. And right. those things are tremendously important when it comes to development. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I, I, I think, and there's room, there's room for, structured organized activity and sports and then there's there's room for that that kind of free creative time for kids to just be kids and to to think of their own activities and find new ways to play basketball or new ways to uh play soccer or play a create their own games you know there's there's room for both of those models to to kind of interweave with each other and uh and as you're saying there's benefit there's there's lots of benefit to that um and i look back at my time so fondly of just being able to just go and play and just like with my, with the kids in the neighborhood or with my friends coming over, whatever it was, like just getting to go be outside and, and play. There's, yeah. uh, those are fond memories. Um, well, that's one of the silver linings that I think we've all heard about and seen is you go out to the streets now in the last few weeks and it's old school. I mean, kids are out playing, they're chalking on sidewalks, they're running they're riding their bikes, they're, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost eerie, the fact that my little neighborhood that I walk the dog in every morning and ride my bike through every day, it just has just transformed. <laughs> and, you know, I've always said, and I think a lot of people like Terry Orlick from Canada has always said, kids want to play. You know, I, I always ask my students, you know, given the choice of an iPad or a basketball, what do you think most kids would choose? And, oh, they all would choose the iPad. And it's like, I don't believe that's the case. I think there's an intuitive inherent to the human nature is wanting to explore, wanting to move. And I believe that to this day, I don't care how much we infiltrate kids with technology. If you give them a chance to do it and it's, it's an environment that they have decision-making and they'll choose it every time. So, you know, and it's just a little diversion is I've seen that sort of old school mentality back in my neighborhood. I don't know if you've seen the same thing where you're at, but it's pretty cool to see. A little bit. I'm kind of in a, 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 a urban Washington D.C. area, and um, it, it's uh, I, I do see people more out 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 and about more, and, and kids kind of in the streets a little bit and and playing. But I think I think you're right. I do think given the opportunity, given the option, um, kids would choose to to play the majority of the majority of the time, and it is kind of natural okay. instinct to. To want to get out there and just just move around and, and do things. Um, sure. We just got to give them. We got to make sure that we create the the type of environment that allows for that to, to be a part of it. I think. Yep. Um, and, and so that leads me kind of. I, I have a couple more things for you. Um, so when you published that article in, in two thousand, um, obviously things have changed since then. Um, what, in your opinion, or what have you found that is different now than it was in two thousand when when that article came out? I think there's a better appreciation for alternate experiences. Uh, I think at the time, 20 years ago, we were still kind of locked into the, if you want to become an Olympic champion, for example, then there's a certain pathway that you must take. And I think now with 20 years of research showing that a lot of the assumptions that we made have been overturned with respect to what's a successful and healthy pathway. I, I think that now people are a lot more 
open to alternative structures and to alternative pathways that might include, let's not rush kids so quickly into selecting something so soon. Let's give them a landscape where maybe when they're early adolescence is when they can start to really hone in on one or two sports as whereas before it was by seven or eight years old, they need to be, you know, hooked into a sport. And so I think a lot of that stuff has been relaxed. And a lot of the organizations I've mentioned before has really seen to it that we've made this conversation mainstream, I think. Right. More people understand the the benefits and the and the drawbacks to special right. specializing versus maybe back in, in 2000 that might not have been the case. Yep. Uh, do you think cost plays a big role as well? You know, the, the cost to play youth sports is astronomical in, in a lot of yep. cases, especially if you're playing year-round. Um, you know, does that play a, a role potentially in how things are now versus then or just in general? 100%. It's probably the biggest barrier for most children, particularly in the U.S., and I know it's true outside of the U.S., but it's the biggest barrier is economics. And the irony here is, you know, we, we tend to think of the specialized sports as being extremely expensive, and they are. But the irony, too, is there's a lot of families where they can't afford for the kids to play multiple sports. They can't afford multiple types of equipment and shoes and uniforms. So the irony is specialization for a lot of families, I'd say for most families, is a result of economics. They, they can't afford for, especially if they have multiple kids and they can't transport them to multiple locations a week. It's like sometimes kids specialize because they, they can't afford to do more than one thing. So, yeah, I mean, this is something that uh, it is the biggest barrier for kids, bar none, is socioeconomic status. And there's plenty of research to support families of a certain income. Just they the kids don't play and it's it's sad yeah and i think and then there's also research that you know kids who are able to pay three thousand dollars to play a certain sport that that increases the inequality within within that community um as far as participation to be able to to play because you have groups of kids who are able to play and then you have groups of kids who, who might not be able to to, to play because of the cost um, and because of the time commitment and because maybe they have uh, other things that are going on or other commitments and things that need to take up their time. Um, and so there's so many factors that go into being able to just participate um, that we have to really understand the atmosphere that, that, that we're in with, with these sports, that it's, it, there's so many factors that play, play a role, uh, cost, of course, being one of those big ones. Yeah. Um, and in fact, one of my, my college roommate and one of my best friends um, who uh, I actually did an episode with um, uh, earlier uh, this month, um, he told me a story about that exact thing where he, uh, he was a really good athlete, but he, he, didn't, he played football in college, but he didn't play football growing up um, for that exact reason. He said, you know, my, um, you know I could go play basketball or, or I could, you know, go do, play, so- play soccer or whatever it is. Um, but there was some equipment that I, I really needed to, to get and that it wasn't an option at that time. Um, and so I never played football and eventually he was able to play. Um, but, you know, it wasn't when he had wanted to play. He had wanted to play when he was younger and, and he didn't get to play until he was, until he was a bit older because there were barriers for, for him to be able to, to play. Um, 
And yeah. that shouldn't be the case. We need to figure out ways to eliminate those barriers so that so that way everyone who wants to play is able to play. Um, and so, and you know, I, I think uh, you know, if we're talking timely, I think that this COVID situation is going to be really challenging for a long time with the youth sport environment. Uh, economically, youth sport leagues are just being annihilated. Sports right. has taken a particularly large toll. And, you know, when you look at the medical system, we have priorities and it should take a toll. But, you know, this isn't going to make it any better. I think we've been dealing with financial challenges, the youth sport landscape for ever. And this is a big setback and it's going to take a lot of time for us to figure out how it is that we can maybe reprioritize funding for lower levels versus, you know, I think I saw something on ESPN this morning that it's like a $21 billion loss to the sports industry. Uh, this situation, well, that's $21 billion. The youth sport industry was never going to see in the first place. Right. You know, so anyway, it is, it is complex and I don't, I don't know what's going to happen coming out of this to, to try and make it any better either. Yeah, it is a really difficult situation. And, and I think important conversations are going to be need to be had uh, in the in yeah. this space because I think youth sports or sports in general can play a role in moving us forward in a positive way. But I think for a lot of the things that we talked about, there there needs to be conversations about how to do that in a uh, in a in a in a in a good place and, and do it in the yeah. right way. Um, so that way we can reach more more kids and more individuals with the benefits that that we all know that sports can can have. Um, so anything to leave us with anything any kind of as it relates to to your field and to, to this idea of, of specialization versus you know having a more diverse uh, participation what anything to kind of leave us with any any thoughts or advice well if you do it the right way youth sports can be one of the greatest predictors of success later in life and if you don't do it the right way then we see the type of mental health tolls that it can take and so if we're truly if we truly love sports in this country which it, which it appears that we really do yeah. then i think we want to make sure that we're doing things the right way to get the most out of it so that's what i'll leave with well that's a i mean that's a great thought to to leave it with and and uh, i just want to thank you for for taking the the time out of your day to to sit down with me and have a conversation and uh, obviously in, in a 45 minute conversation um it is uh, the base for for bigger yeah. conversations to be had, and, and hopefully we can spur some thoughts and some some ideas within you know a large audience to be able to to think about some of these important things that that you've you've touched on. And so, uh, thank you for taking the time. I, I really appreciate it, and I'm grateful for for your time today. And uh, hopefully we can we can do it again. fun and informative episode. Um, you know, I really enjoyed speaking to, to Dr. Wiersma and, um, you know, this question of, of to specialize or to not specialize is, is one that many youth and their families face. Uh, and it's not a decision that should be taken lightly in any way. Uh, you know, there are very positive and beneficial reasons for a youth to diversify the sports they play versus focusing in on one sport. You know, many of those reasons were, were discussed in today's episode. Uh, and that isn't to say that for some youth, special, specialization makes a lot of sense, because it does. 
Um, we just need to make sure that, that no matter how many sports our kids are playing, that the environment they are in is a positive and healthy one. Uh, and so, you know, of the many lessons I've taken from the conversation today, two kind of have stuck in my, in my head. Um, one, the, the importance of creating a, a positive environment for our kids, not just physically, but socially, emotionally, and cognitively. Uh, and two, the, the simple idea of, of making sure that our kids have a, a say in what they're doing, both in, in what sport or sports they might play uh, and in the design of those activities. Uh, and so I encourage all coaches and youth athletes out there to, to really think about the environment and culture of your team or, uh, and or program and uh, just continue to ensure that it is a positive and supportive one where everyone's voices are heard. Um, so that's it for today. Thanks again for listening and uh, we'll talk to you all soon.